due to technical difficulties, the first two minutes of Mary's pitch were not recorded. So I didn't come into program, you know, hugely obese. I came into program dying of a, of a behavior where I would really be, you know, functionally dead while I was practicing my compulsive overeating. And that's what it was about. It was like a series of temporary suicides that I, you know, got harder and harder to sort of come back to life from. And all through that time, um, it, it basically the behavior started probably with puberty and continued until my mid-30s. And in that time, you know, I would come across the next great diet or, you know, get really interested in exercising and think that was the answer. Maybe therapy would be the answer. Um, I, you know, went on programs that really worked wonderfully. Um, and then one day they would stop working because what I didn't know was I was starving to death. I just didn't know what I was starving what the thing was that I was starving for until I came into program. And, and I actually knew a little bit before I came into program because by the time I was in my mid-30s, I had sort of exhausted every possibility. You know, I knew for me it wasn't sugar. I, I'd been clean of sugar for a long time, just compulsively overeating on lots of other stuff. Um, I knew for me that, you know... I, I knew what the right things to do were. I just couldn't, I couldn't do them. I couldn't, I just didn't have the willingness to do what I knew was right for me. And, and it wasn't just about food. It was about living my life. And I think one of the things that, you know, that was the most, was the greatest anguish for me was I couldn't count on myself. You know, if you said, you know, can I meet you in two weeks and we'll go do this or that, I would say yes, but I wouldn't really know if I could really show up. You know, and if, if the day came when, and I just didn't feel ready to go out into the world, well, sorry, I've got the flu, or, you know, I don't know what happened, I just, you know, I can't. And so, you know, it just progressively ate away my sense of self-worth and my sense of self, you know, just of being a good person, because I couldn't count on myself and you couldn't count on me. And how was I going to hold down a job or or know that I could show up to something because maybe when the day came I wouldn't have anything I could bear to go to wear to go out into the world you know and so in 19 at the beginning of 1985 it would have been a special year for OA there was something special in the air and um, it just so happened there was a panel of OA speakers on the radio and for the first time I heard human beings talking about my life I really heard that there were people out there that somehow felt like deep inside their own bodies was an, a, an emptiness, a phys- almost a physical emptiness that they were like, stuffing food down themselves to fill. I mean, I can remember having experiences where I was bloated with food, my stomach hurt, and I still needed to keep eating because that emptiness was so gaping and so terrible for me and I didn't know that it wasn't a physical emptiness and I didn't even I knew there was something crazy about what I was doing but I didn't understand why I didn't ever feel full 
until I heard these people talking and I realized that I was really, really starving spiritually. And the talks in this program about how what we have is a physical, emotional, and spiritual disease. And my experience in watching my fellows over the years and, in, and, it, and sponsoring people and, and seeing my own recovery is that we have the disease, those three components, in different proportions. You know, some of us are deathly ill physically and, um, and have really strong spiritual life or a still, you know, pretty healthy emotional life. I was really, really sick spiritually. I was pretty sick emotionally and I was pretty sick um, physically. But the biggest piece of it for me was my spiritual life. I just, it had never occurred to me that that was the emptiness I was trying to fill. And, in, and I just related so to what these people were, were saying, and I feel so grateful to those an, anonymous compulsive overeaters. I have no clue who they were. But they saved my life because I knew then that there was a place that had the answer, that might have the answer for me. So... I, you know, I just was a little nervous about coming, and I kept, at the time, we had this answering machine that had a message on it, and it, on that message, somebody read out every single meeting time of every day that was happening in LA, in LA. and I would get on the phone, and I would listen, and listen all the way through the week, and then I would think, well, I could go to that one, or I could go to that one, but not this week, and I did that for probably... You know, most days for a couple of weeks, you know, thinking, should it be today? Could it be today? What's... And then finally one day I showed up to a meeting in Santa Monica. And lo and behold, the speaker was a slender guy. You know, so nothing like, I mean, what I expected. Nobody in the room, everybody in the room just seemed to be happy. Just happy people. Nobody talked about food. And what the guy was sharing about was... When he says he's going to do something, his recovery is, he does it. And if, even if he's going to be late, even if he doesn't think he's going to do it as well as he'd hoped to do it, if he said he was going to do it, he did it. And I thought, I didn't know that was the message I needed to hear, but that was what I needed to hear. I still thought they were hiding the diet from me. I wasn't quite sure, like, why don't you tell me what to eat? You know, what is, what is this abstinence? And people would go, like, don't worry about it. You'll figure it out. It's, like, not a problem. I go, like, you know, why aren't they telling me? What, what, do, I, what do you have to do around here to get them to tell you the secret, the secret diet? <laughs> but right away, I, I asked somebody to be my sponsor. Right away, I started working the steps. Right away, I read the big book. And when I read the big book, I believed every single word of it. I didn't know, you know, I was really afraid for a while that even if I crossed out all the alcohol terms and I put in all the compulsive eating terms, that maybe I didn't have what these people had. And if I didn't have it, then maybe the solution wouldn't work for me. Until my sponsor said to me, okay, maybe you don't. But, you know, try this. Take Bill's story, right? And just underline anything that kind of grabs your attention or means anything to you. Okay, so I did that. And then she said, I said, okay, I did that. And then she said, okay, now I want you to take everything you underline and copy it out by hand, just verbatim, the things that you did. Okay, I did that. So, okay, now read it to me. And when I read it to her, it was my story, word for word. 
And it's like, at that point, I knew. You know, that Bill might look like a really different guy. He might even have a different form of the disease. But he was telling my story. And what worked for him would work for me. And the first thing I heard about his story was when he got in trouble, what he did was he went out and he looked for another drunk to whom he could give away whatever little bit that he had. And it wasn't because he was an expert. You know, it wasn't because he was now the illustrious founder of AA. He was nothing but a drunk trying to stay dry. And, in, you know, in imminent danger of walking into the bar across the room, you know, across the hotel lobby. And he goes and he finds Dr. Bob. And that said to me that if I want to recover, I need to do those 12 steps, one after another, to the best of my ability, and I have to find another suffering compulsive overeater to share the little bit that I have, the one day of abstinence, the one little experience of knowing that I was powerless, whatever struggle I had to do my fourth step. So I would say for all the time that I've been practicing my recovery, the single most important tool and support of my recovery next to my abstinence has been working, participating in the recovery of other compulsive overeaters on a daily basis. It has been the richest experience. It's been more important for me even than working with my own sponsor. And it's not because I have anything wise to share, anything, just living through the day abstinently, one more day. But it's like in the process of seeing someone else's recovery, I had the opportunity to love myself in a compassionate way that I couldn't do all by myself. I could do it because, you know, it was easy to do for someone else what I couldn't do for myself. It was easy to see in someone else their discomfort in their body and how insane that was. You know, and then understand that my own discomfort was insane. Um, so that started for me, uh, my recovery started for me in early 1985. And um, it's been an amazing experience to show up to life one day at a time, um, taking my, you know, taking it as it came. Sometimes it was fabulous. Sometimes it was heartbreaking. Some of the most life-changing and scary things have happened to me since I've come into recovery. I went through a divorce. I raised kids as a single mother. I went and did professional training. I entered into a career. I've now left a career. I've now left the country. I've now moved to a, you know, a whole other country. I've entered into a new marriage that is one amazing ride. I mean, I don't know how people, I don't know how, I mean, it's like, I don't know how I would have done what I've done without those 12 steps. And every morning when I first wake up, the first thing I do before anything. Well, I brush my teeth, I wash my face, and then the very next thing I do is I sit quietly and I say a prayer and then I sit as quietly as I can, say another prayer, and then I say, God, I am powerless today, as powerless as ever over every person, place, thing, situation, food, everything in my life. Please, you know, 
please help me. And I say the third step prayer, and then I'm ready to do my day, and that takes five minutes, 15 minutes, nothing, you know. And for me, you know, in the early part of my recovery, I did that some days, and some days I didn't do that. And little by little I noticed that the days I did it were a lot better days than the days I didn't do it. It just became a completely sensible thing to do because it was like, took no time, didn't cost anything, and it meant, it was kind of like, it was as if I were a violin, you know, and as I sat there for 15 minutes, I like, I tuned the violin, and then I was ready to like, play my music all day. And it's meant that, you know, when really, really bad things happen, and they do, and things that, you know, really break your heart and make you sad, and you don't want to, don't know what to do, you know, what I've learned by working the steps is, God has always, if I have gotten quiet and asked, has always given me a certainty about what the next little thing to do is. I have never been confused about what the next little step is. I might not have a clue what the second, third, or fourth step is, or what I should do next week. But the next little step, if I have asked for guidance, has always been absolutely clear. You know, it's get up and brush your teeth, or it's... You know, go answer that letter or go pay that bill or go gas up the car or whatever it is. It's like totally obvious what the next little thing is. Or should I say this to somebody? You know, it's like if I get quiet, you know, it's like um, get the food out of the way and all of a sudden there's this very reliable, sure voice that feels to me connected to my higher power. And when I tune into that first thing in the morning, then... The rest of the day is feels really sure-footed. So even if things are really sad, you know, my dad has died while I've been in program. I've been separated from my grown kids for three years. You know, that was really like, oh, are they really going to, they're just at the beginning of their adulthood, are they going to be okay? You know, and it's like, I know now. They have their own higher power. They're going to be fine. Like when I was leaving here, my son, who was in his early 20s at the time, was living in the house with me. And it's like, oh, and he's going to have to go out into the big world and get a landlady or a landlord, and they're going to be tough on him, and how is he going to do it? And, and you know, a school friend's mother couldn't get her sons out of the house, bought a whole apartment building, you know, gave a you know, unit to each of her sons, and one of the sons says, come live with me. So like his first landlady is... Is somebody's mom <laughs> looking up? I mean, that's a higher power thing. I couldn't have engineered that. I just had to kind of trust that you know things would unfold, and that's you know that's been the real blessing of the program for me is that before I came into recovery, nothing was acceptable except perfection. Perfection is not something I can do. Um, I can fake it for a certain period of time. Um, at least enough to fool me. Nobody else, I'm sure, was fooled. Um, And then when I couldn't fake it anymore, I'd I'd have to, you know, crash and burn for a while. And there was nothing in between. And what the 12 steps are to me is how human beings are happy. And when I look at people who aren't in program, who are happy, I think they do those things kind of by nature. They go, I am who I am. Here I am. This is it. They go, oops, you know, I'm not, I'm not everything. 
there's something bigger than me. They go, uh, this is what I did. You know, some of it was good, some of it wasn't so good. If I messed up, you know, what can I do to make amends? Uh, you know, it's like, oh, I didn't show up for that thing. I completely forgot about it. Sorry. You know, hi, I'm sorry. What can I do? You know, um, they tell the truth. They, they're truthful with themselves about what they're feeling. And they kind of live in their own bodies and in their own spirits. And they're happy. And that's been my experience. It's like, you know, I, the last three years, I got married about three and a half years ago. I've been living as single head of household, professional woman, for about 15 years. And I didn't have to explain a lot of things. I didn't have to look at a lot of things. Um, if, you know, I had lovely men in my life, but when I didn't want them anymore, I was like, gee, sorry, it's not working out, you know, <laughs> you know, and then, you know, and then I really, I think I grew up enough, you know, to be more present to somebody else's life and more accountable. And, and what I've discovered in the last three years is I have a lot of character defects I wasn't aware of when I lived all by myself. They weren't challenged. They weren't, there was nothing to rub up against. And, and I've really had to, you know, do some really hard work on, you know, how I like to have my own way or how I think I'm right or how impatient I can be. I thought I was a really patient person, but that's because there was nobody challenging my patience. And I wasn't in a circumstance where, you know, there were so many new things coming at me, my patience would get frayed. And so I've had to learn. I've gotten the opportunity to grow in a way that I would never have been able to present. I've been never been able to show up to that because I wouldn't have had any method to work through it. I would have had to either nail it right at the beginning or not do it at all. And now it's like the best thing about recovery is, for me, is I get to mess up because now I know what to do when I mess up. And because I get to mess up, I get to try things that I might not be so good at at first and then I can get better at it. And that is one of the greatest pleasures of life. It's one of the things that... that that feeds a sense of being deeply alive for me and really vital. And as you can see from all I've been talking about so far, for 20 minutes, I haven't said anything except where I came from in food. None of it has been about food. The whole food issue basically dropped away. Not because I wasn't trying to be responsible about my food. You know, I really do. I mean, I try not to eat too many brown things. I don't eat a lot of fried food. You know, I try to eat three meals. That was my initial abstinence. You know, I looked at the way I practiced my compulsive overeating and it was basically to graze all the time. So I really didn't have a clue how much I ate. I was like, how did I get so fat? You know, because I thought, I was like, you know, I just eat a little of this, a little of that, maybe a box of cookies every once in a while, but how did that happen? Well, when I started eating three enormous meals a day, so it's like as much as I could bear to eat at breakfast, I would eat because I might not survive till lunch, you know? And it was like, oh, my God, how do you do that? So it was like, oh, I better just really make sure I have plenty, right? So I'd eat this enormous pile of food, and then lunch would finally come, right? And then I would eat this enormous pile of food to survive until dinner. And I lost weight. 
It's like, how did that happen? It like, like, was like oh, more than I could even bear to sit there and chew and I would lose weight because that's how much I was eating when I wasn't paying attention. It was just going on all the time. And so for me, my first abstinence was to eat three meals, no matter what, no more, no less, nothing in between, no fussing about what the meals were particularly, um, just ate them. And then eventually it was like I just got bored with chewing that much and the meals just started to get smaller and more normal. And wherever I've gone, wherever I've traveled, I mean, I'm actually, you know, I have... This, you know, I've made decisions about food that have nothing to do with my abstinence. I'm a veg- vegetarian. Um, you know, I don't particularly like white flour or white sugar. I don't eat much of it, but I don't freak out about it either. Um, you know, the thing, you know, the things that I that I do, but it's nothing to do with my abstinence. It's just, you know, that's food that works well for me. But for my abstinence, in the way it's evolved over 23 years, is you know, I live sanely with food. If it's not sane for me, I don't do it. You know, because because no piece of chocolate, no tub of ice cream, no cookie, no piece of cake that somebody else is eating is worth my freedom. And that's what abstinence is all about for me. It is the freedom to live my life as a happy human being. And, you know, what the steps have given me is a sense of, you know what, there is no other Mary. This is it. You know, there's no other you. You know, that's it. And, and this is a great thing to be. You know, this is my gift to the people around me. This is the one and only one there is. And my, you know, what my higher power wants me to do is to be the best Mary, that I can be, not an imitation you because I think you're cooler than I am or whatever, or smarter, or cuter, or whatever. You know, it's just like, or younger, or, I mean, it's like at any stage of our lives, we can always find out, you know, figure out something to hit ourselves over the head with. And, and now it's like, in January, I'm turning 60, and it's like, oh, okay, you know, does this mean I can't do this, I can't do that, I can't think of, you know, I, I mean, my life isn't doesn't have a future, you know, what does this mean? It's like, nothing, you know, it's just like, it's just part of living my life, and I get to, you know, I just get to be who I am, and part of who I am is being 16, you know, that's cool, it's like, okay, see what that's all about, you know, and, you know, what I, what I really see is that I feel, you know, just this sort of privilege, that I get to be a human being, you know, on in this planet, amongst my fellows, um, that, you know, I don't have to know what's coming next. I don't know, have to know whether I'll be safe. I don't have to know anything. All I have to do is just show up one day at a time, just wake up in the morning and go, here I am. You know, what do you want me to do? And with that kind of approach to my life, it's like, I can't believe the things that I've been able to do in program. I mean, it's just, you know, just even moving to another country. I mean, imagine, I mean, I lived here for over 30 years. I'm, I'm a very deeply rooted person. I like to be in my place. You know, I like to, you know, I get really engaged with the people around me. 
and it's like up I go and off I go to this whole new place and what I found there was us sitting in a room in London you know telling our stories you know in a country that's famous for you know glossing over things you know pretending they don't feel this or that I get to go into a room and hear people speak from their heart both men and women and I know when I'm out there in the world generally then you know these are my fellows too and that's one of the great that was actually one of the great early experiences I had in recovery was to realize that when I go out into the world I go to the grocery store I drive down the freeway I don't know out there who's working their program you know I have to assume that a whole bunch of those people are my fellows and that they might not be having a good day they might not you know they might have just cut me off on the freeway but they're doing the best they can and you know it just kind of gave me a whole different approach to my life outside the rooms to know that out there in the world um, wherever I go you know my fellows in some some of these programs you know are uh, in some any of these programs they're out there and so to go to a completely alien place in a completely alien culture in England believe me we may think we speak the same language we do not <laughs> I mean you go you move to Turkey you assume you're going to have to learn who those people are and Americans you know we go to England we think oh it's like okay we all just talk you know they just talk funny that's all and it's like no it's a really different place you know and it, and you really have to learn it and you know, to know that you could go there, you could go to China, you could go to Italy, you know, our people are there. And that's, and that's, you know, just kind of an emblem of what it means to go out into the world. It's like, with these 12 steps, there's just nothing we can't do because, you know, I can show up in my profession and a client can say, can you do this? And you go like, you know what? I can try. I can find out. I'll get back to you. You know, I never have to say, oh, yeah, I'm the best at it, actually. You know, it's like, no, you know, I can learn this. I can find out. I can, I can, you know, do some legwork for you, you know. And that's, you know, that's just a fantastic experience to know that I don't have to be afraid. And a lot of the eating that I did was because I just didn't know how to live in the world. I didn't know how to live in relationship to other people. I, you know, I was always scared for people to know who I was because I, you know, you hear very commonly in these rooms, you know, that, that we all share, a lot of us share this experience that like, the more you get to know me, you're going to see the real me and that's just absolutely unlovable and unacceptable, so don't get to know me. And meanwhile, I'm very lonesome and very scared. And, and you know, once kind of we come, you know, when I, once I came home, to who I was, you know, and, and realized that God made me exactly the way I am because he loves me, that he gave me the family and the experience that I needed to grow spiritually. I mean, one of my first sponsors, real hard-ass, and we're like, oh, and then my mom, and it's like, oh, and I'm the oldest of ten children, and it's like every time she had a new baby, it was like being abandoned all over again. And, and he says, wait, 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 wait. I want you to think about something different. So I want you to remember your higher power gave you that mother because he loves you. And that experience with that mother, maybe she was really abandoning, maybe she is really narcissistic or whatever. It's like, that's what you needed in order to come into relationship with your higher power. And I'm thinking like, you unsympathetic, 
hard-ass son of a bitch. <laughs> you were supposed to say, there, there. <laughs> Let me make up for all that. <laughs> and it's like, but, you know, that was such a gift to me because, you know, it, ma- it gave me pause. It made me realize that whatever was happening in my life, you know, in my early 40s, I celebrate my 20th wedding anniversary with these two little cute kids at home and this nice husband, and then he goes, just before Christmas, actually, I'm leaving. And I'm thinking, like, God, I've been working my program. How can you do this to me? Look at these two little kids. They're crying. It's like, how can this be a good thing? You son of a bitch. <laughs> it's like, okay. <laughs> it's like, I'll take one more step. <laughs> but you know what? Years down the line, it was like, oh, baby, did you extricate me from something I could never have gotten myself out of? that I really needed to do in order to really go on to live a full life. I would have put up with that indefinitely. But my higher power had a different plan. And whether I liked it or not, you know, he was doing it for me. So, you know, what I've seen here is like the difference for me when I was a practicing compulsive overeater, it was I lived in the insane delusion that I was supposed to control my world in some way. And I was like someone swimming on the ocean, right? And the ocean gets really choppy and it's big. And I'm going, stop it! You know, calm down! Stop it! You know, and I'm I'm flailing around and I'm choking and I'm going down. And it's like, come on, come on! (laughs) You know, cut it out! I can't stand this. I can't swim fast enough. You know, stop! And the difference for me in program was same ocean, same person, it's just like, I've, you know, it's like I found out that take a breath, you know, lean back, and the ocean will support me. And I just like float along. And that way, you know, and the current can carry me. So it's sort of like, you know, instead of like being a furious, drowning, you know, crazy person, you know, I'm like a cork kind of bobbling along, you know. And, and it's like, you know, it just takes me where it takes me. And it's not that I don't participate. Thank you. Thank you. You know, I do, I do the best I can to just get quiet. My job is to get willing. My job is to be honest. My job is to ask my higher power to help me. And then that's the end of my job. You know, my higher power takes over. And what I'd like to finish with, because I'd really love to hear from you guys, is it is, um, it is brilliant. And it is such a pleasure to be a compulsive overeater because, and I am today the same compulsive overeater that I was 23 years ago. The only difference is I don't have to live with my face in the food. But I am, whatever that means, compulsive overeater, it's like a complex of, of characteristics and gifts and sensitivities and Whatever that is, I don't know what it is. It's just shorthand for this kind of person. And to be this kind of person who needs to be plugged in in a, in a sort of explicit way to a higher power and who needs to say thank you and who needs to remark on the things that I have to be grateful for and who needs, needs, if I do something wrong, to make amends as fast as I can. Um, you know, it's like I'm thrashing around all night just waiting for the morning so I can make the amends because 
I, you know, we have these promises that are set out in to what happens to us before we even finish all the steps. You know, once we've gotten to our ninth step, these things start to unfold in our lives. And what they are is gorgeous. They're things that people who don't come to these rooms don't even hope to have in their lives. It's things like real freedom and real happiness and, you know, a sense of possibility that's, what's that got to do with food? You know, it doesn't seem like it has anything to do with food, but it has everything to do with food because food was the thing that I chose to drug myself and um, to stay in a place where I didn't know who I was and what I felt. I could have chosen anything. It just happens to be food. And if I, don't, if I do without the food and I don't do those steps... I will switch to something else. There are plenty of other things to switch to. But from the first moment I got here, I wanted to be free. And that's, that's the gift of program, is freedom. You know, in every, the freedom to go anywhere, the freedom to be who you are, to be who I am, the freedom to try things, the freedom to learn things, the freedom to be one among many, the freedom to truly love the people who are in our lives, and to be loved by them. It's, you know, thank God I was a compulsive overeater. I don't th- know that I would have found any of this but for that. So, that's my share. And now I would love to hear from you guys. Could you talk about how you work steps 10 and 11? Yes. Um, I've done it different ways, different times in my recovery. I've gone through periods where I have written them out. I don't do that anymore. Um, The way I work step 11 is what I was describing earlier. I wake up in the morning and I dedicate my life and my day to my higher power. Um, Through the day, I, you know, I'm I'm always kind of remembering God in my my day. Um, And that, you know, and I experience that as as being in me and in you. You know, it's like as I'm engaged with other people, I'm really hearing, so when I'm dealing with somebody and I don't like what they're doing, I'm thinking on one level, I don't like what you're doing, I'm thinking on another level, okay, God, what are you trying to tell me through this person? You know, what is the teaching to me here? So probably the biggest part of my step 11 is the paragraph on acceptance. Um, And I, I read that every day for probably the first two years of my program. I wrote on it. And it, you know, just settled in in a very deep place in my spirit. On my tenth step, what I do is um, I'm kind of, you know, as, as I'm drifting off to sleep, I'm just kind of like feeling through my day. Is there any disturbance? Is there anything undone? Is there anything I, you know, don't feel right about? Sometimes it's just so obvious, I don't even have to think about it. You know, it's like I've inconvenienced five people because I was late about something and, you know, and then I say I'm sorry to each of them, I acknowledge it, I, you know, as fast as I can. That's how I do that, that tenth stop. Um, so, does that answer the question? Perfect. Okay, thank you. Hi. Hi, Anne. Hi, Anne. How was your relationship with your higher power? 
That's a lovely question. Um, I think I fell in love with God right away. I had this real kind of, I remember having this like this warm feeling right in the pit of my stomach and it must have been some kind of energy waking up. I don't know what it was. I just remember that. And then, you know, over time, and so at first it was like, that's all I wanted to do, you know, and it's like meditating an hour a day wasn't nearly enough or, you know what I mean? And and what's happened over time is, 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 same thing sort of like with my abstinence. From the very beginning, I was taught to choose an abstinence that I could do easily, one day at a time, for the rest of my life. And that's how I feel about my relationship with my higher power. It's very important for me, actually, to, to take action. It needs to have some active something. I need to say something. I need to sit in a place. I need to breathe. I need whatever, whatever it is. Every once in a while, I need to be with other people celebrating it's just, you know, part of what keeps my spiritual practice alive. But now it's more like a living, breathing thing in, in my day. And it's not that I would recommend that to somebody. I've been very conscious of how my, my, the actions I take in recovery have evolved over time. And what I did in my first two years was appropriate to that time. You know, it was appropriate for me if I took a bite of something between meals by accident because I was cooking food or something, to spit it out. You know, now it's not so important. That's not, that's not so important. But it was very important then to be rigorous about it and have, you know, clear boundaries and really needed that. Same thing in my spiritual practice. You know, when I was just beginning, I read so much and I was just enthralled, you know, with because with, I, I had found what, you know, something that was really missing in my life that I was really desperately hungry for. But now it's, you know, now it's more of a living, breathing thing, but it's a constant thing. I don't go a day without sitting in prayer and meditation for a little bit. You're welcome. Hello. Hi, thank you so much. Um, how do you take God into, into your relationship, into your marriage? Kind of like what I was just saying, that, you know, for me, what's happening in the world out there is sort of happening on an obvious level, it's you and me, we're talking, but I'm also conscious that my higher power is in you, and things that I need to learn come through people, you know, they're the ones who are teaching me, so something really, like, you know, I've got a, you know, I've got an English husband, they're really tough, they turn out to be like a graduate course in husbands, (laughs) and it was like, you know, and it was like, you know, there are all kinds of things, you know, that I have to work out with him. And sometimes I just think, you're demented. You know, it's like, stop it! But at another level, I'm thinking, okay, this is what I need to learn. What are you trying to show me, my, my higher power? So in work, the same thing. You know, I could be sitting across the table. I'm a, I'm a lawyer. So I'd be sitting across the table from opposing counsel. He's getting all red in the face and he's poking his finger. And it's like, I don't have to get personally exercised about that. You know, because, you know, it's like, that's not, that's, it's a nothing to do with me. I mean, I think, and that's also one of the biggest things that, that through my higher power, what I learned was, my higher power, God help them, loves me. My higher power thinks I'm adorable. And that put absolutely, you know, the final period on the question of whether I was worth anything or not, whether you liked me. You get to like me or not. Some people are going to really like me and some people aren't. And my day does not, you know, I don't get 
happy or, un- or less happy because of what somebody else is thinking. And so let's change my relationships because what somebody else is thinking about me, what they say about me, is about them. It's not about me. It teaches me what they care about and what, you know, what's important to them. And it could be very negative about me, but it's not about me. It could be very positive about me. It's not about me, you know. And that's because my higher power really, you know, is speaking in some way through them to me. So that's, you know, if I think about it in that way, it really helps me to be a loving presence in other people's lives. It really helps me be a patient co-counsel or whatever, you know, because I didn't, I wasn't as personally implicated in everything that happened. Everything that happens is not about me anymore, you know. The only important thing about me is that I have this relationship with a power greater than me who made me because, you know, I'm the, I'm the best Mary there is. <laughs> so, you know, that's all. So. We have to, oh, did you? Okay, sorry, sorry. You're going to come up here? Oh, no, no. Oh, no, that's, I mean, just thanks. Thanks so much for letting me share. I really appreciate it. Wow, that was amazing. Thank you.